time for the Isles Nation podcast with your host, Pete. Welcome back to the Isles Nation podcast. And for the first time, we have a guest. I'm Pete. I'm joined, as usual, by Lawrence. Lawrence, how are you tonight, buddy? Feeling frisky, Pete. Frisky as always. So Lawrence is here, but not only Lawrence, we got our good friend, Mike Pack, former member of the nation back when we used to have the website. Big time Islander fan, father of 27. Mike, how you doing, man? I'm doing great, Pete. Thanks for having me. And Lawrence, always a pleasure. All right. So we got a lot to get into since the last time we talked. Didn't record last week because of the whole Western trip and the weird start times and all that. So let's start it off. Let's go back in time. Before the road trip, the Islanders lost four straight games. And before they left in the last game, it got pretty ugly. Uh, 4-1 loss to the Washington Capitals Saturday night at home. Third string goaltender Hunter Shepard shut them down. It was ugly. Fire Lambert chance. Fire Lou chance. The chance are heard through TV. They were pretty loud at UBS. And they caught the attention of the team. Uh, one guy in particular that wasn't too happy was Casey Sezikis. And I quote, it's a joke. That kind of stuff ticks me off. It really does. I've got no time for those fans. I've got no time for them. If they want to be like that, they can stay home. A couple of days later, Sezikis clarified his statements. Said, you come after one of us, you're coming after all of us. We're a family in here, and we look out for each other. There's a lot to take from this. We never really reacted to the quote in the first place. So I'll start off by saying, one, just never go against your fan base. It never works out well for the athlete. You could ask Evan Neal earlier this season with the Giants. You can ask Javi Baez and Francisco Lindor with a little thumbs down stint they did a couple of years ago. Uh, you're always going to come crawling back with your tail between your legs. You cannot win this battle. They pay your salary. Ownership does not want you feeding with your fan base. It's good for no one. Uh, the fact that it came from Sezik is a startling. Uh, it's a homegrown guy. I guess he wasn't really here for the real lean years, like the early 2010s. But he did come up a little before the playoff runs in 2013. And he did go through the years like 2014, 2017, 2018. So he knows that that building can get empty very quickly. And that this fan base will stay home. Like, they have no problem staying home. Uh, to me, it speaks to a bigger issue with the team. Feels like they're all fat and happy. There's a feeling around the organization that those back-to-back conference finals were kind of like a second dynasty. Uh, half the team has a contract to retirement. Half the team signed for multiple years. They have some kind of no-movement clause. I mean, the guy in question himself, our fourth-line center, is currently playing on a six-year contract. That's pretty self-explanatory. And then in his follow-up, I don't know what he's doing with this whole Sopranos bullshit with the family stuff. Relax, Casey. So, uh, Mike, we'll start with you on this one. What's your takeaway from Casey's comments? And basically, it just can't happen. I, I assume that's where you're going to go with this. Yeah, I mean, you alluded to it. You never win against the fan base, especially in New York. I mean, this goes back to, you mentioned Javi Baez and Evan Neal from earlier this year with the Giants. I mean, it goes back to Bobby Bonilla uh, when he was with the Mets, his first stint in the early 90s, early to mid-90s. Uh, Jack McDowell with the Yankees, you know, flipped off the fan base, coming off the uh, pitcher's mound one game. So, you know, Sezikas didn't flip anybody off, but you don't go after the fans. It's it's a battle you're never going to win. Um you know, you, you appreciate the, somewhat of the sentiment of, hey, you know, you attack one of us, you attack all of us, but um, it's a stupid thing to say to attack the fan base. Let's, as you said, I mean, this fan base has endured a lot over the last 25, 30 years, 
And clearly there was a number of lean years in between where fans didn't show up for good reason. Ownership didn't give them a reason to, to show up. And for them to now, or for Sezikis to take the approach of, well, if they don't like it too bad, they could stay home. Um, you know, you may get what you want. If, you know, you may get your wish soon because if the team keeps playing how they have been over the last few weeks, especially, um, people are going to stay home. I mean, let's be honest. It's not cheap to go to the arena. It's not cheap to park. Um, you know, the, the, the concessions, I mean, everything is just very expensive and, you know, not to get into a, it's not a political thing, but people have a limited amount of, of extra income to use. And if they're not going to get a good product and be entertained for a couple hours, they can spend that money elsewhere. They don't have to go to the Islander game at UBS. They can go to the movies. They can stay home and watch the game, or they can go out to dinner with some friends or family. So it was a poor choice of words. I mean, I know some people said, well, give him a pass. You know, he's a heart and soul guy. You know, I don't necessarily give him a pass because he should know better. You never attack the fans, especially this fan base, which is loyal. I mean, yeah, there may be times where they don't show up because there's no reason to, but it is a very passionate fan base. And to take the approach that we're going to uh, go head on with them, it's not going to end well. So I am very curious on Wednesday when they return home, hit the reaction to him. I I'm sure most people will cheer and that's their prerogative. Um, but personally, if I were in that arena, um, I, I certainly would not be cheering his, him being on the ice because I think what he did is, and the fact that he didn't really backtrack from it, uh, I think sufficiently, I think is even more reason to say, you know what, it's Casey. Um, as you said, Pete, before it seems like he's maybe he's fat and happy. And that's obviously a poor attitude to have right now. Lawrence, um, obviously tomorrow's first game back on the road trip. Do you expect any kind of reaction from the fans towards Sezikis? Uh, obviously, like we said, it's pretty much, I mean, he never really issued an apology, like Mike said. And that's another thing that kind of took me aback because Mark Parrish said basically the same thing about 15, 20 years ago when he was here. And they made him write him. They made him pen an apology letter to the fan base on the team website. And Lou and obviously ownership doesn't strike me as the type to let this go. I mean, old Lou would definitely not let this go. He definitely would have forced an apology. It would just, as soon as it happened, it felt like there were weird vibes around the team. And then they go out west and they continue to lose, obviously. They won their last game. Do you think there's something to that comment saying something bigger about the team and the organization as to where they are right now? What you guys were saying that I kind of agree with that I think is the biggest part is when he had the chance when he was asked about it as a follow-up question to clarify himself, he didn't walk it back. And saying what he did is almost doubling down and to come out so defensive and saying, we're a family when you come after us, you know, we're going to stick up for each other or whatever it was. Like, we weren't coming after you. Like, we want you to win. Like, that's completely missing the point. We think your coach is, is, is insufficient for success right now. So we're upset with what's going on because we know you can do better and we expect better. So not only did he not walk it back when he had the opportunity, he doubled down and was completely missing the point. That's the frustrating part for me. I think tomorrow, <clears throat> it's going to depend on how they start. I think the vast majority of these fans want this team to do well and see them succeed. So if they come out well and they're playing well and they win, it's probably going to be a little bit in the rearview mirror and, and he'll get lucky that way. But if they go down early 
or if they're taking stupid penalties off the jump, or if they look flat, it's probably going to get real loud in there real quick in a way that they, I would say, really don't want it to. Um, and Lawrence, that's a good point. I mean, yeah, if they come out tomorrow firing on all cylinders, yeah, I think most people will probably, you know, water under the bridge, whatever, let it go, no big deal. But if they come out and they're down 2 nothing quick, and they're playing flat, and they're or they're playing exactly like they've they've played a lot of the road trip where they'd get out to leads and then slowly start to give them away. Yeah, the fan base is I think going to get uh, restless, and I he's going I think hear it, they're going to hear it more about fire and Lou and fire and Lane and everybody else. And with, again, with good reason. Um, you know, New York fans. I mean, I, I I think we're smart fans. I also think we're spiteful fans in a way where. Yes, we want to win. We want the team to win, of course. But, you know, if you push the buttons enough, um, we're going to give you what you want in, in a way. You know, we're going to come back out and we're going to, you know, you tell us not to do it, we're going to do it. I mean, it's it's just that's the mentality. It's a, you know, screw me, no screw you type of attitude that the, the fan base has. And, yeah, I think it could get ugly tomorrow if things go off the rails with the you know with the actual on ice product and i think it is a good point that you made it that islander fans are smart because they had the whole 2021 22 covid season where the arena wasn't ready and the whole team got covid and they had the 17 game road trip and for the most part all islander fans just basically were like all right we'll completely erase that season we'll give them a huge mulligan never happened ownership and management treated it the same way Let's run it right back, except with the, without the head coach for some reason, one reason or another. Anyway, they come back next year, last year, and they're a mediocre team, and then they get into the playoffs late, and then this year they come back, get no real changes in the offseason. You could say Horvat and Engvall were offseason acquisitions, but no actual changes to the roster in the offseason, and it looks like, at best, the same mediocre team. So at this point, it's like, all right, guys, it's been two-plus years since your little run. Like, it's time to get accountable here. We need to hold these guys accountable. And the players, at least for me, my reaction was, aren't these fans still thankful for what they did for what we did for them two years ago, three years ago? Like, why are you turning against the players now? That's kind of what I got out of it. Like, these guys think that we should be happy that we're still, like, forgiving them. I'm struggling to find the words. But basically, it's like, all right, guys, you did that for us two or three years ago. Now it's time to... Like, if you're going to do something with this core, it's got to be now. So let's get going. And Islander fans realize that, like, all right, we gave you the whole COVID weird year with Arena. We struck that. Last year, new coach, you made the playoffs. All right, not great. But now it's time to get going. And it seems like this, like I said earlier, this core is just, like, kind of acting like they gave a second dynasty when they really didn't. It's They're flat. This this core, I mean, it's, they've. I think... And maybe they've realized it themselves. They've kind of hit their ceiling, I think. And I think maybe they realize it too. And this is, and I know they've they've made some moves over the you know over last year with with uh, Horvat and and uh, Pierre Engvall to try to bolster the depth here. They let go, of, you know, they they bought out or they traded away Josh Bailey, excuse me. Um, so yeah, I think there is a little bit of staleness with the team, and perhaps the players feel it too. Um, but it's, you know, yeah, I mean, to the to the point of, you know, Pete, you're talking about, you know, the fan base has given or, or the fan base has, you know, acknowledged essentially that, okay, the 
the, the COVID season, the new arena, being on the road for the first month of the year. Okay. It, you know, water, it happens an aberration, no big deal. Um, you come back last year and as you said, it's a pretty stagnant roster, pretty stale team, nothing that gets you kind of excited. And then they ran it back again this year. And I think the fans, as you said, I mean, they're frustrated with, I think, the direction of the team for the most part. And I, they think they're certainly frustrated with the coaching and the management. Um, and with that, the, they get frustrated with the fan base. I mean, excuse me, with the players. I mean, that's just natural. And again, that's, I don't blame any fan because I think we're all three in the same boat where we're all frustrated with how the direction of the team has gone over the past, you know, 18 to 24 months. Well said, well said. All right, so speaking of that, let's move out west. The Islanders just got back from a four-game road trip. In this league, you can lose three or four games and say you won 500. Uh, honestly, I don't think they played all that poorly on the road trip, perhaps even encouraged a bit by their play, but it just felt like they were trying to find a way to lose every single one of those games, especially the Vancouver game. That was appalling. I mean, they went up 3-1 when Horvat scored midway through the second, and then they consistently took penalties, including the rarely seen two penalties on one play that put them down five on three for two minutes. I mean, then they went to Seattle, and it was kind of a similar game where they blew a lead and then lost in overtime. The Edmonton game was they were playing well, and it got away from them when they took a late penalty. And then Calgary, they, they got the win, but once again, they blew a late lead. They blew two third-period leads in that one. I don't think that they played poorly on that road trip. Obviously, the huge takeaway here is the penalty kill. The penalty kill on that road trip went 8 for 16. 50% is not good for a penalty kill. Um, overall, in their last eight games during this little slide, the opponent has scored on 12 of 27 power plays. The Islanders' penalty kills dropped to 31st in the league. And it's hysterical, <laughs> in my opinion, that during this time, the power play has gone 5 for 10 in their last three games. And the power play is up to 10th in the league. So last year, you have an all-time bad power play that probably cost them seeding in the playoffs, maybe cost them a playoff series if they could have scored a couple more power play goals. And then this year, you turn around, the power play is top 10 in the league, and they have an all-time bad penalty kill. When this team is known, or at least has a reputation, of being stingy and not giving up goals and having elite goaltending. So Lawrence, take away, takeaways from their road trip, how they played, and what's going on with the penalty kill. We've touched on it before, but the penalty kill itself is like they're just running around and a lot of it's behind the net and in the corners, it seems like. So they're, I, I don't know, we, we don't know if it's communication or we don't know if it's just people not maybe being used to playing a certain system that they're trying to do on the kill. But it seems like when they're getting beat, they're running around and they look completely lost. So I don't know what it's what, what about that would be different and why it's not able to at least be a, a respectable unit like it has been in the past. As you power play has been spectacular, but we're, we're having a seesaw effect with this team where it's kind of like revealing how unbalanced they are. Because if they're doing, if they're excelling in one part, they're kind of forsaking the other. So what that tells me is is what everybody seems to know and say is that there is not balance in this lineup. There's not enough depth. They don't have enough players in in all these aspects to be able to have everything running top tier. Um, we said it about Barzi, and what I'll say about the power play too is Barzi. What he was doing in the preseason that we said he needed to do more is he's been shooting more, and it seems simple, but him shooting more is yielding results. Yeah, I mean, they, they, they there was some definitely some encouraging parts of that trip. I mean, 
the offense seemed to finally hit a little bit of a groove early on. It's still, you know, the offense still overall, the numbers are still not great team scoring, but, you know, they've started to uh, be more productive and cash in on some chances. And it, that's certainly a good thing. Um, the penalty kill. Yeah. I mean, it's frustrating because you're right. I mean, it's right. It's, you know, last year they had this historically bad power play and then now all of a sudden they have this historically bad penalty kill and it's, you know, they can't just be, you know, they, they can't just have both at the same time. It seems like they're just not, I guess, in the cards for them to do it. I mean, I think the penalty kill too. I mean, a lot of it goes to the guys who would generally play. And I mean, you're, you know, they're playing guys like Sezikis and Clutterbuck and, and, you know, not that they are super old guys, but I think the body's starting to wear on these guys. You know, they've played a lot of minutes. I mean, I think Clutterbuck is his thousandth game tomorrow, and, you know, he plays a hard, rugged game. And yet he's playing a lot of penalty, you know, a lot of minutes shorthanded. Same thing with Sezikis. So I think part of it is the the personnel they're employing. And again, I'm, I'm not going to sit here. I, I can't sit here and tell you. You know, I'm not saying run Barzell out there on the penalty kill because that's it's clearly not his strong point. But, you know, the guys who are generally supposed to be their top penalty killers are some of the older veterans on the team. And I think that's causing some issues here, too. It, just that they don't have that, you know, they don't have those young, fresh legs anymore. And you can't, you know, that extra half a step, you're slow. That's a huge difference when you're on the penalty kill, of course. So, um, Certainly, some encouraging signs from the from the road trip. Clearly, a lot of frustrating things because you blew a lead in every game. Um, when you know if you if you you know in years past, when you if you if you tied those down, then that road trip all of a sudden you go from one win to maybe three wins, and all of a sudden now you you know you're feeling a lot better about the team and not a 500 mediocre type of season going on. I think you made a great point with the personnel, the penalty kill, and I'll take it. A little step further and a little in the other direction. Adam Pellick and Scott Mayfield, I guess, would be considered a top two defensive defenseman. And Pellick has obviously had a weird start to the year, has been injured, and he hasn't been all that effective when he's been healthy. And Scott Mayfield's been dreadful. Like, I already very much regret this seven year contract, and we are 20 games into it, not even. Mayfield's been dreadful. He's considered one of our top penalty killers. Pellick has not been Adam Pellick. Romano's been decent. Pellick, uh, Pulak's been decent. But then, of course, yeah, they did see, I think it was a little two games ago that of the 11 penalty kill goals we gave up against, 10 of them, the combination of Sezikis and Clutterbuck were on the ice. So that definitely lends credence to your theory. Just some guys that obviously we lost Parise on the penalty kill. That's a big one. I think Paggio is still capable. He has the legs, even if he doesn't have the shot or the hands anymore. You want to see Holmstrom up there. He's gotten the opportunity. He scored a couple short area goals. A guy like Engvall, I mean, he with his speed, he should be an effective penalty killer. You look even Horvath, they probably don't want to use him in that role because they don't want to use his minutes that way. But even a guy like Brock Nelson's killed penalties, I guess you don't want to use him too much either in that role. But the Sezekis-Clutterbuck duo, like you said, it's been established as a penalty-killing duo for over a decade now. So I guess they want to stick to that. But I think the bigger issue... and. The bigger issue is the defense, especially Pelican Mayfield. And of course, the fact that Elias Sirokin has a 906 save percentage. Your best penalty killer has to be your goaltender. And we've said it on this podcast for a couple of weeks now. LVP killed me. I was one of the first on the train of, dude, Sirokin's not helping us. Sirokin needs to be better. 906 is not good at all. 
and we're getting a month into the season, he has to step it up. We're confident that he will turn it around, but if this team wants to do anything, they cannot survive 906 goaltending from Elias Rokin. We've touched on that a bunch on this podcast, and with the penalty kill, that's a lot of it comes down to the goaltending. Your goalie has to be your best penalty killer, and Shirokin's giving up almost three and a half goals a game. Oh, God, I'm he's been terrible. I mean, that's there's no way to sugarcoat it. I mean, the last few weeks, especially, he's been he's been terrible. And it's not again, it's not all his fault. I mean, of course, you could always say, you know, the defensemen aren't clearing guys out in front. Yeah, um, they're screening guys. They they're doing you know they're. The forwards aren't doing their job. It's it's not always an individual. The goalie lets up a goal. It's all his fault. But when you're getting paid the money he is, he's there. He is supposed to be their superstar, right? He is their answer to Connor McDavid and to Nikita Kucherov uh, and to Sidney Crosby. He is their franchise guy. You know, despite the fact that Horvat and Barzal are making big money and, you know, they need to be better too. They've started to get a little bit better, but again, it's a production business, right? You know, you can, I don't need to hear about who's driving the play more, who has more better, has better advanced stats, this guy or that guy. It's a production game. If you don't score, you don't win. Okay. I mean, it's as simple as that. So, um, and, and to Sorokin, again, it comes down to just making the saves. You can't have, like you said, Pete, you can't have a 906 save percentage from your your best player or should be your best player and expect to be successful in this league. They're they're clearly lacking that uh, that big save. And honestly, even from a uh, you know this casual fan watching the game, um, I have no confidence right now with him. And I'm a lot more confident with Varlamov in net than Sorokin. And again. I, I think he'll turn it around. I have no reason to doubt he'll turn it around, but you you, you know you can't wait forever to find the game. You know they're seventeen games into an eighty-two game season, um, almost at the quarterway point. You got to start stringing some good games together and start to put some wins, stack those wins. You can't just say, "Well, we'll figure it out in January." That's too late. You got to get into it now. And the thing with Sorokin is the timing of some of these goals. Obviously, a lot are late in games and we're holding leads. So from that point of view, you'd be like, your goal needs to make a save to win you the game. But also, you think back to the last couple of games, the one that sticks in my crawl is the Boston game, where Simon Holmstrom scores a game-tying goal in the third period on the road in the toughest building in the league. And then 30 seconds later, Pasternak's little floater from the blue line squeaks through Sorokin. That's just a killer, man. You, you stole the momentum back. You got a big short-handed goal. And you can't let it last 30 seconds without your goal you up a softy. You know, the Edmonton game, Edmonton scores in the power play, goes up 2-1 with like eight minutes left in the third period. A couple of minutes later, Connor McDavid breaks down. Obviously, it's Connor McDavid. He scores goals. But the puck, like, Sorokin, like, saved the puck and then battered it into his own net while trying to control the rebound. Like, I don't even know what that was. An awful goal to give up. And now the game's over. It's just, and then last couple of games, obviously, it's just waiting for the time goal to go in. So, Lawrence, nah, now you're the minority here. Let's hear you defend your boy. What do we got? I'm not, I mean, well, first of all, everybody knows this is my favorite player and I do believe in him, but I, I mean, I completely agree. The goal against Boston that squeaked through him, I told you, was was garbage. That goal you're talking about in Edmonton, I'm not even sure how the physics of that worked. Like you said, like it kind of squeaked through. The puck was like on the outside of the net and the way he like shifted his body, it's like it hit the back of his foot and then deflected in. It was such a weird, it was a weird play, but <clears throat> these goals that are going in, they're not... The reason why it's frustrating me is because obviously every goalie is going to give up his fair share of goals, but 
these goals are not they just seem like mental errors they seem like he's not not like he's not paying attention but like is he is he just getting down on himself is he not really like i, I don't know what it is because he he'll make he's made some phenomenal saves this year but these goals the ones from far out are you know there there's there's two sides of an argument on a screen it's like yeah the goalie should get position but the screens are hard but like now it's becoming habitual. So I'm just as concerned as you guys are because 906 is not going to cut it. I mean, I thought if he was low, he'd be at like a 912. So we're we're like way below that. And as you guys are saying, if he's at even 915 right now, you're probably looking at a team with two or three more wins and they're, you know, in second place in the division. So it's essential that he gets better. It really is. And even to Mike, your point, you're saying Varlamov, you have more faith in right now. I kind of do too, but even he's kind of chilled a little bit where I'm not so sure. And... The other night in Calgary, what I was looking for Sorokin was when the shootout happened. I'm like, all right, are we going to get that classic Sorokin that's athletic all over the place and making these saves? Like, no. Like, luckily, we were scoring, too, and kind of had an answer for when they were scoring. And thankfully, Wally put it away. But he didn't look that steady in the shootout either. So I'm concerned. Uh, again, I, I, I do have confidence in him, but it's got to it's gotta change quick. Well, you like to hope that maybe the win the other night in Calgary will kind of get him back on track. I mean, sometimes he just takes that one, you know, the one save, the one shootout, the one game just to kind of in your head to get back into a better place where he's a little more confident. So fingers crossed that's the case. And again, I'm not a Sorokin hater by any stretch. I, I think having a, a good goal, he is critical to this league. And I know a lot of people have different thought processes as far as how much to pay goalies, what are their true worth, are they like running backs in football where, you know, you can get, you know, they're a dime a dozen essentially. Um, I don't agree with that. I think it, I think it's certainly an advantage, but if he's, if the problem is when the goalie's struggling, you can't hide him. And so if you have an eight and an eight and a half million dollar player who's not living up to his end of the, of the bargain, then it's bad enough if you know it's bad if you're a forward, but you can kind of get you could hide a little bit if other players pick up the slack for you. You can't hide when you're the goalie. You know, you either, you have to be that top guy at all times. Otherwise, you are gonna get scrutinized and rightfully so. Yeah, I think the main issue with goaltending that us nerds that devalue the position have is that every elite goalie has a bet outside of Henrik Lundqvist too. Of course, the New York Rangers pretty much the only one that's ever accomplished this. No elite goalie has like a 10-year stretch where they're consistently at like 920 or better. Even like the Vasilevskis or the carry prices of the world mix in like a 910 every couple of years. And like you said, Pac, when you're goalie, especially when you're the New York Islanders, and this team needed every bit of Sherokin's 925 last year to smear to have a miracle to sneak into the playoffs last year. You can't hide a 910 save percentage from the Islanders. Your season's over. So that's where a lot of this comes from. And I rib Lawrence all the time offline, like when the Islanders scored to go out 4-3 in the third period against Calgary on Saturday night. My first count was hopefully four goals is enough for the $70 million man. And while that's pretty much me trolling, there's also a lot of truth to that. Like they're not scoring a ton of goals, but they're scoring enough goals where if you're paying your goalie over $8 million a year, you should be able to win you some of these games. The other thing with this league too now, with how it's structured in terms of offense and scoring, like these teams, they smell blood in the water. Like if a goalie gives up a softie or two, or if he's having a rough stretch, these teams know. They test them. They put pucks on net. doesn't matter who your opponent is. Like when that starts to happen, they're going to pile on. So the goalie has to either lock it down, be able to recover or something, because no matter who it is, 
they're gonna they're gonna recognize that immediately and try to capitalize. Yeah, and again, it just comes down to your best players, which are the ones in theory you're paying the most, have to be your best players. I mean, if if they're not if they're not playing up to their contract, it doesn't matter if you know Simon Holmstrom's having a good season or if, or if Adam Pellick's having a good season or anyone else. If your t- if your eight and a half million dollar goalie is not playing up to an eight and a half million dollar standard, then you're dead in the water. I mean, there's just there's no coming back from that. So I I don't think he's a nine oh six goalie, but you also at some point, you know, he's played eleven games now. Again, maybe he's played about twenty percent of his games he'll play for the season. At some point, though, you know, you're gonna be a nine oh six goalie if you don't bring it up anymore. You know, if you don't start to really turn it on. And get that back to that fashion of yeah last year where he was a nine twenty four goalie and a and a, and a Vezina uh, finalist. I mean that's that's the expectation and and fair or not, you pay a guy that much money, even if the team around him isn't great, he is supposed to carry that team. That is his job. So um, I expect more. I think he'll get better, but it's you know seventeen games into the season now. You can't wait until game forty to start getting better. Speaking of paying money and expected to lead the team, uh, Anders Lee is becoming way too big of an issue here. We've touched on touching him every podcast pretty much. The third line is a black hole. First of all, you have Pajot, who has no goals in 17 games. But at least he's solid, resp- responsible defensively, and he can ski, keep up with the play. Lee is a train wreck. You cannot put him on any line. They put Wallstrom on that third line. The poor guy was a minus four. Obviously, Wallstrom probably didn't help himself there. I ain't really watched. All those goals back to see how many Walshman was personally responsible for. But you see Walshman's on minus four on Saturday. And you're like, oh yeah, he played on a line with two black holes in Lee and Pajot. I mean, the third line looks serviceable when Holmstrom was on it. When you had Holmstrom and Walshman and Fashing rotating in with Pajot. But the they couldn't hide Lee on the top line there either. Because that creates other issues in the lineup. I mean, the main issue with this lineup right now is Anders Lee. And how you get away with playing him. And as we've said many times... We don't. We're probably not going to healthy scratch him because he's our captain. He makes seven million dollars a year, so I don't know if he you try and hide him in the Matt Martin role and put, send Matt Martin to the press box. Now, if Andrews Lee is your fourth line winger, is that the best way that you hide him at this point? Because he cannot play in the top nine. He's killing the third line right now. We have two lines that are playing good hockey. The top six, and they're not even playing that great of hockey. You just Andrews Lee. There's nowhere to put him in this lineup, and I don't know how you move forward from this right now. Yeah, I mean. <sighs> The I mean again looking at the stats two goals one assist in seventeen games Pajot no goals uh, five assists in seventeen games Pajot's a, a minus eight Anders Lee is a minus seven again I know plus minus is not the end all be all but when you're minus eight through seventeen games um, again you don't have to be you don't have to be a a, a Mensa member to realize that's not good. You know, when Alex Ovechkin was minus 30, you know, years ago, he was putting up 45 goals and 30 of them were on the power play. You can almost live with that. You know, you can't live with that production when you're getting from your third line, $12 million combined between the two of those guys. You have two goals to show for it. That's just unacceptable. Um, yeah, you would, th- you know, it's funny because Lou, Lou's always been at least historically known as, and I think he has rightfully so the reputation of being kind of business only. I mean, this is the guy, and I, I'm sure we'll touch on it later. He fired a, a coach with the Devils in first place with less than a week to go in the season. So, to me, 
this guy is, you know, at least he was all had been kind of the quintessential. Um, I don't care what you've, you know, what you've done in the past. It's what have you done for me lately? I mean, he let guys walk with the devils with you'd be like, oh my God, how do you let Scott Niedermeyer walk? But for him, you know, he had it in his mind. He wasn't good for the team and he let it go. And he let one of his best plays, a Hall of Famer go. Um, I'm baffled that they are allowing this to go on with Anders Lee. And I understand he's the captain. I understand he's, you know, he, they re-signed him at a time when Tavares walked and they couldn't get Panarin and, you know, they, they wanted to, you know, they had some, a little bit of goodwill going with the team with Trotz after his first season. So I understand they wanted to kind of keep that momentum building and, and retain the captain. And it's, it's a good sign to the fan base. But at this point, as you said, Pete, he's been a black hole. And he's if he's not being productive out there, again, at the end of the day, it's the same thing with Pajot. I don't, you know, that's great. You could skate. That's great if he, you know, he does he PKs a little bit. He, you know, he, he's on the PK a lot, Pajot. Um, again, the worst P, PK in the league, but that's another story. You gotta produce. You know, you are they're making too much money the both of them to sit there with two goals between them and 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 again, if you want to get to a spot where you're a playoff team and maybe have a chance to do some damage, you can't have that much of your salary cap space being a black hole. It, it just, it, it can't sustain. I do think that Lee's trajectory is similar in a lot of ways to the trajectory of Matt Molson once he left the Islanders. If you look at Molson, he was typical net front guy, was scoring 30, 30 plus goals a year. Anders Lee scored 28 goals last year. So this drop off is kind of out of nowhere. He was still productive last year. But then he got to Buffalo. He had like, I think, one good year on his five-year contract. And then by the second year, he was on the fourth line. The third of the year, he was a healthy scratch. And then the fourth year, he was in the Myers. It feels like once these title players go, they're not fast. They don't do anything at all if they're not contributing offense. Like, they don't kill penalties. They're not checkers. They don't transition the puck. Like, they're real. if they're not putting the puck in the net, they add very little to your team. They don't play any other role. I guess Lee, you could say, is a leader. It's a, it's a role you can't really quantify. So once a scorer stops scoring and they can't skate to add to the play, they can't dish the puck, they can't move the puck out of their own zone, they're not even real physical threats like a Martin or a Clutterbuck. It's just, where do you go from there? Like Molson was out of the league quickly, and Lee still has, I believe, two years left after this contract, after this year. It's going to gonna be, there needs to be some kind of move here. I don't know if he gets bought out in the offseason or if they retire, if they send him to Bridgeport for the last couple of years, but there's no way he's making it through three more years. Lawrence, how are you handling Lee right now? Nobody really knows from all the points you guys said. The fact that he is the leader and the captain, you just don't see them get healthy scratched a lot. Um, you, <clears throat> It's weird because Molson is a good comparison, but I think even with Molson, it wasn't even a full year because remember he finished that year in Buffalo and then I think he got... He, he was flipped to Minnesota. Oh, no, he didn't finish the year. He got flipped to Minnesota early, later that year and then got the contract after that season, I think. So it, it was like he was very all around. But he yeah, he fell off too. Lee, I don't... It's got to be a fourth line thing, I think, because they've already been sitting Matt Martin a little bit. Um, they claim he was a little bit hurt. I, I don't know how much I believe that. But that, that's got to be the place too because Matt Martin, for what, for what his role is too, he's kind of dropped off a bit. So that to me would be the only option. He should be sad. It just won't happen. And I think this is where kind of Lane doesn't really make much sense to me because it feels like Lane to him. Yeah, I mean, to the point 
uh, Lawrence, the of not bench of, of you know, can you bench him? He can't bench him. And you alluded to with Matt Martin how you said you know you don't think yeah he, he was hurt air quotes you know was he really hurt uh, I don't know I think if you wanted to kind of have Lee safe face here and the organization safe face you can meet with him and say listen Anders I mean he should not say see the writing on the wall that his career is over I don't think it's there yet but again as you said these guys can go fast you know they can go downhill fast. But maybe it's one of those things where you talk to him and say, listen, let's 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 get you a rest for two or three weeks. You know, we'll say you have a hamstring, you know, something, a lower body injury, whatever the hell it is. Let's just get you off the ice for a couple of weeks, get your head straight and refresh. I mean, it's, it's it's crazy saying this at only on November 21st, but maybe recharge the battery a little bit and have him come back in a few weeks. And maybe that sparks him, gets him a little bit, you know, gets him going a little bit. But yeah, I mean, uh, I, I don't see, I was clearly, I don't see much of a market for a, a power forward on the downside of his career with a couple, a couple years left at big money. I don't see the, the market really shaping up unless you're going to pair it with a lot of draft picks, which again, we could talk about later, but that's kind of gotten them into that, this predicament as we speak of. Um, but I think you just have to, you got to come up with a creative way to have him sit, you know, that's not a, a bench in, but it's more of a reset for himself. Um, and you see if that works. And if that doesn't work, then you got to have some other more difficult conversations of, you know, can, do we buy him out over the summer? Is there a trade there? Like you said, Lawrence, is there kind of another team that has a similar problem, a similar person or similar player in a, uh, you know, with, with issues that has a bad contract that you're swapping bad contract for bad contract? Maybe a change of scenery helps. I, I know. I don't know. But I think at this point, you're right. You, you got to try something because that, that third line is too much of a black hole. And we haven't heard much about him the last couple of weeks, but the name Zach Parise always is kind of in the back of our mind. Will you ever come back this year? Obviously, if the season keeps going the way it's going, you probably won't bother. But if they win a couple of games here and there, he might get the itch. And there's, I don't know how you bring Parise back. And keep Lee in the lineup. Like there's, Lee would Parise would take over the third line role. Then I guess Lee has no spot in the lineup at that point. You add another body. You're not gonna bench like Holmstrom to play Lee. I would hope not at least. So any discussion of potentially bringing Parise back, you have to factor in like, all right, he would be taking Lee's spot in the lineup. I think that is how you have to look at potential Parise return. And would the organization be willing to get to that point right now, even if? And this is even assuming Parise wants to come back. We have no clue. But if he has that urge at any point in the next couple of weeks, I think the discussion has to be, all right, Zach, you're coming back, and Anders, you're coming out. Mike, I don't know if... Don't yeah. Agree. yeah, I mean, I th again, I think it's... it's, And that's with... Not just Parise, it's with anyone. I mean, if, they, if this team... And again, I know we're probably jumping the gun a little bit on some of our discussion, but... If this team is serious about trying to win this year, and based on the moves they've made in the offseason, it seems like they are trying to win. They're not trying to do a rebuild or retool or, or reset, whatever you want to call it. Um, then anyone they bring in, whether it's Parisi, whether it's somebody else, yeah, there has to be an odd man out. And right now, Lee looks like the most likely candidate based on production and based on just 
use to the team. He's if he's if his only asset he's bringing right now is he's a leader. Well, you have a roster of seventeen other guys. Many of them are veterans. They've been around the league a long time. If you can't fill that leadership void with him not in lineup, then you have bigger issues here. So yeah, I think whether it's you're bringing in Parisi or somebody else at the deadline, and again, people will get hurt. So you know maybe it's, maybe kind of it, it's it sorts itself out. But you're right at this exact moment. If, if Zach Parisi picked up the phone and told the Islanders, "I want to play," you know, uh, I'll sign with you guys for a year. They have to, you know, who's coming out, and Lee's the only one I think that makes any sense as far as a from a production and a and a role filling a a certain role with the team vantage point. All right, let's move on a bit here. Uh, overtime shootout issues. The Islanders are now one and five in overtime games this season. They went six and nine last year and three and ten the year before that. Meeting over the last three years, they're ten and twenty four in what most of the league considers a coin flip. Obviously, it's a talent issue. I went back and watched the overtimes. Uh, Vancouver basically was throwing out guys like Kuzmenko. Uh, Seattle was throwing out Jaden Schwartz. And Calgary threw out a rookie like Connor Zary. We're countering with Simon Holmstrom, who I guess has been a bit of a pleasant surprise this year, but he doesn't compare talent level to those guys. I mean, you put out Barzell in one unit, Barzell with Horvat, and then you have Nelson with, I believe he usually plays with Palmieri or Engvall. And then it's Holmstrom and Paggio, and then you got Sezikis out there. Like, there's not enough talent. And then, obviously, you can't use guys like Lee in overtime because they're too slow. So, they're bad in overtime. It's a talent issue. It feels like the Islanders had a little success early in overtime, early in the Trotz era, because they were one of the first teams to recognize the value of possession. The rest of the league would be playing these wild overtimes where they would trade chances, and then you would watch our overtimes, and Barzell would just rag the puck in the neutral zone for, like, two minutes trying to bait the other team into a bad change. seems like the league's adopted. Uh, the league's even considering changing rules because of it. So we were good for a while there, then they figure out our recipe. I guess good on us for being one of the first teams to recognize that. But do you get mad about overtime games? I mean, on one hand, it's a coin flip, and it's not real hockey. On the other hand, these are real points in the standings that we're losing. Lawrence, what are you making of the overtime play? Their problems in overtime kind of mimic their problems on the penalty kill and that they're blowing coverages. The, the, the Quinn Hughes goal, there were like two guys that lost their man. I don't know how that even happens on a three-on-three, but it was like two guys lost their man and Hughes was alone. So it, it, I think it's more of a systems issue too. And the problem is is, is they're good on that first unit on, on overtime with Horvat and Barzell and Dobson typically, but that's assuming they win the faceoff. I mean, it seems like they're not even winning that initial faceoff. So if they're not having possession initially, the, the problem is just starting immediately, and then it's it, it's going from there. Outside of the first unit, you're, you're right. There's not enough talent. The depth isn't there. So they need to um, – there's got to be a way they, they can they can tailor how they attack and how they defend with their with the skill set that they do have. Otherwise, it, it's always going to be an issue. And and I was even – like we were talking about earlier, even the game against Calgary, they won in the shootout. It's like we were just lucky that we were scoring goals that shootout because typically that does not happen because Calgary was too. We just happened to kind of best them a few rounds in. It just – they, I, I, it's coaching. I think there, it, it has to be because they, they're just getting, they're not just losing. They're, they're, they're losing coverage, and they look kind of lost when it's happening. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think you guys hit it. It's, I think it's really a talent deficiency on this team. I mean, if you look at overtime, you know, predominantly the, you know, the, the, the plays with the most time are, as you said, Horvat, Barzal, and uh, Dobson. 
Then you get to, you know, Pelic and the, again, Pajot is getting third most uh, time of overtime of forwards. He hasn't scored yet this season. You know, Pierre Envall, the next guy, I mean, or, you know, Brock Nelson. So it's, they don't have a lot of great options, which, you know, it's, that's kind of what it is. That's how they're built. Um, and yeah, Pete, to your point, it's not real hockey, right? And, and the reason I say that it's in the playoffs, whether you, you know, I would take nothing if you, once you get to the playoffs and I hear, you know, they put the records up when playoff game starts or, you know, they go to overtime in a playoff game, they were two and 10 in overtime. I don't care because that's not, that record means nothing because you're not playing three on three hockey in, in the in the playoffs. But as you said, these are points that you're losing that, I mean, last year they made the playoffs by a point. This year, you know, you, you've already one in five. You could be in that, you're probably going to be in that same position again where you're, you know, you're in the playoffs or out of the playoffs by a, a less than a handful of points. So, yes, I don't consider it real, um, you know, real indicative of how good of a team you are as far as, you know, how you how you perform in three on three or in a shootout. But if you keep blowing points because you don't have enough talent to keep up with other teams, um, it's a problem. I mean, this and think about it. Go back to the years when the Islands sucked, when they had Franz Nelson and and, and Robbie Shrimp. And some of these guys who uh, probably were not, P.A. Parento, were probably not good hockey players. Jeff Tamblini. What is that? Jeff Tamblini, the wickedest. Yeah, Jeff Tamblini. I mean, these guys were not really good hockey players. Like, you wouldn't, like, pick these guys over other players. But some guys are just great, have a great uh, skill set when it comes to one-on-one play or in a shootout. They look incredible. So it's, and but it, it just goes to that, yeah, they don't have the Islands don't have a lot of talent right now, but it's costing them real points, which may be the difference between them playing in the playoffs and them not going to the playoffs. I don't know who this falls on, if it's a coach thing or if it's on the star player to let the coach know that it's okay. But it blew my mind how we played a shootout on Thursday and we had two players score a goal, and then those two players were the first two players to go on Saturday in Saturday's shootout. Horvat scored in both shootouts, and then Wallstrom didn't go until, I believe, the fourth or fifth shot on Saturday after he scored in the shootout on Thursday. So I don't know if it's on Barzell or Nelson to tell Lane, hey, it's okay, like, I won't be offended. Like, I know coaches would send Yager out there for shootouts all the time early in his career, or early in the shootouts career, until Yager was trying to, like, hey, guys, I suck at this, it's okay, you know, me out there. But Barzell, I believe, was at, like, 20% in his career. He's not good at these. And Tavares used to be the same way. When he was here, like he just wasn't a good shootout player. And that Wallstrom, I could think off the top of my head now, three times where he's won us a game in the shootout in the last two or three years. And we might have like three or four shootout wins that whole time. So basically every shootout we've won, Wallstrom scored the game winning goal. Yeah, and I, th- I, think in his, I think in his career, Wallstrom was four for 10. I was just looking it up before. So, you know, 40%, I know it's a small sample size, but four for 10, as you said, for a team that's deficient in, um, you know, in that regard. And, Horvat, I think, is at thirty. Horvat's at thirty-seven percent almost. Um, Brock Nelson's at twenty-seven percent. Barzell's at twenty-three and a half percent. Again, I don't know. I, I don't I haven't looked to see how that compares to league average over the time, but clearly, Wallstrom, as you said, seems to have something where he's an effective uh, penalty shot uh, option. And yeah, maybe yeah. Hopefully, you'd like to think the coaching staff is taking notes of that, but. I I can't, you know, I I don't know what to think of the coaching staff. I'll put it that way. 
But do you think that's on Lane or is that on Barzy to be like, hey, Lane, like, I understand I won't be offended. Like, well, it's, it's tough because, you know, I'm sure as a, as a competitor, you know, like you said, you mentioned before Yager. Yager at that point of his career was a Hall of Famer. He had nothing left to prove. He had been MVP. He had won a couple Stanley Cups. He was, everyone knew he was one of the best players ever to play. And, you know, he still is one of the best players ever to play the game. Matthew Barzal, for as good as he is with the Islanders, he is still, you know, he, he's had some playoff success. He's never been an MVP or a Hart Trophy candidate. He's never going to score, you know, 50 goals or he's going to be what, you know, he's never going to be the top guy in the league. So I think it's probably more difficult for him to go to his coach and say, don't put me out there. Because I think it probably does look bad on him. It reflects poorly on him. If he says, listen, coach, I'm just not a good option here. You know, somebody else is better. I think as an athlete, you're always thinking, I can do this. Even, you know, I can be like in basketball, I can, you know, a sharpshooter, I can be shoot 0 for 20, but on the 21st shot, I know it's going to, I think it's going to go in. So I'm going to keep shooting. And I think that's kind of the mentality Barzal and a lot of these guys have is, yeah, they may have sucked the last 40 times, but that 41st time, they're going to put it in the net. To jump off the back of that too, it's like most of these guys, if a coach says, go ahead and shoot, if you like, especially in this case, we're saying like Barzal or Nelson, most guys are going to be like, yep, you got it. Like, even if let's say they're not in their head, think they're the best at it, they're going to be like, yep, he's calling on me. This is my opportunity. So yeah. And if you look back historically, like not even just with the Islanders, like we mentioned with like Franz Nielsen, but like typically these guys that are like, really good at the shootout, let's say aside from like Datsuk, are like not the stars. You look at the guys that have been really good and real creative off the top of my head are like Mike Ribeiro or like UC Jokinen or even like Crystal Tang is a defenseman who they put out their lock because he can score. So it typically is not just the star equals the guy who's good. And then you have other guys with unique techniques like Vanek. Remember Vanek used to just come up to the hash marks and take clappers? So like there's certain guys that do certain things that'll work and this is, I think it falls on the coach because you have to know what you have. You have to be practicing these enough and see what these people have in the tool bag. Now, the other side to that is we just may not have that many good people that are at the shootout right now that are going to be successful. So if Wally's it, and you know he has all of these um, instances where he's won us games or he's been able to to bury whatever percentage it is that he's at now and he's he's actually connecting, then he's got to be in your top three. It can't just be the same, uh, you know, the same three guys that you're rolling out there each time because they're your best players and hoping that you're going to win because it's just not working. All right, this brings me to a bigger point, which is the standings as a whole. The league does a tremendous job with this loser point garbage to make teams feel like they always are in it. They always have a chance. They're not that far out of it. We've lost 11 of our first 17 games this season. This league is trying to tell us that we're a 500 team. At the same time, it convolutes the standings. I mean, you look at the standings right now, and we're four points at a second in the division with a game in hand, even though we've lost uh, 11 of our first 17 games. Basically, I did a little bit of research this afternoon. Real 500 still matters, as in the Islanders are 6-11, not 6-6-5 six, six or whatever they are. Since the league adopted the wild card standings, it takes an average of 43 wins to get in as the final wild card team in the East. And only twice in nine years, not counting the two weird COVID years, has a team with less than 41 wins made it into the playoffs. And both of those teams had 15 overtime losses. So you, you might want to say, oh, the Islanders are right there. The Islanders do have to end up winning games and getting to real 500 or over 500 if they want to make the playoffs. As for the Islanders and their position in the standings, it's true that we're only four points. I mean, only four points separates second and seventh in the division. But I look at it from more of a macro perspective. The Rangers have basically done what they have to do already. 
They don't need to be much better than an NHL 500 over our last 68 or whatever games due to the points they were accumulated and stacked up. I mean, if you think back to 2019, the Islanders did basically the same thing with their 17-game point streak. That team started 16-3-2, then went on to lose 28 of their next 49 games and were still in a playoff position before COVID despite a seven-game losing streak. So we pencil the Rangers into a top-three spot. The question then becomes... Would you be willing to risk even a dollar of your hard-earned money that this team has a better record for the rest of the season than either one of the Devils or the Hurricanes? I would guess probably not. So that puts you in a wild card spot because that's three teams in the division ahead of them. So at that point, your fourth best in your division, Billy and Washington look much better than we expected. Pittsburgh's starting to turn things around. You look to the other division. Any hope for a Boston fall-off is gone. Florida picked up where they left off in the playoffs. Tampa looks like they survived the Vasilevsky left start. Toronto's turning around. They won four straight. So yeah, the standings are telling you one thing, but a deeper look, and it's not as easy as it seems like. People are like, oh, we win these two games against Philly this week. We're right there. I'm not sure I'd buy it. Well, you know, it's funny you mentioned Florida because last year, as we know, they went to the cup cup finals and they were a wild card team. So you, you can't just, and they knocked off Boston, which had, put up, you know, the record break in regular, regular season. So that's not to say the regular season is not important because you have to get into the playoffs, right? I mean, I think, and it seems like people have had this uh, thought and I, I, I agree to it as well. The Islanders are over the last couple of years are better built for the playoffs than they are the regular season. And that's great and all, except you got to get to the playoffs. You still have to go through 82 games. Um, and as you said, as we were just talking about the about overtime and shootout, those points they still matter. You know, even though maybe it's not real hockey that you lose it in the three on three, but you know, you're dropping a point here, dropping a point there. That's the difference again between being a wild card team and and a lottery team. So there's cer- certainly still, um, you know, they 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 certainly still have uh, concerns there going forward. But you're right. I mean, they've only won six of their first 17. Again, five of those are are overtime or shootouts. So how much stock do you put in them? Uh, I don't know. But again, there's five, that's five additional points you have not picked up. Um, there, it looks like, yeah, they, it looks like they'll probably be in that, that wild card hunt again. They'll be in with a bunch of, the, of those teams you kind of rattled off. You know, the, the Capitals, the Red Wings will be there. At some point, Buffalo is going to have to eventually get good. I've been hearing about for the last decade how Buffalo is up and coming. Every year they suck. But maybe this year they'll actually be productive the entire year. Um, You know, Pittsburgh is always going to be a threat as long as they have 87 and 71. So, you know, they, they, the Islanders are going to be in that mix. And I think you just, you can't go in. I mean, the fact that they, if you're going to lose games, like they just lost six in a row, you got to get points at least some of them, which they did. So that's a good thing, I guess. Um, but you can't go on. You, you kind of, that's it. You can't have another one of these six, seven game losing streaks again this season. You have to now, you got to put together a win five out of six or win seven out of eight type of streaks just to kind of get you a little breathing room so you kind of can get into a little more comfortable position. Um, it's going to be tough. I mean, it is going to be tough from, from the rest of the way because I agree with your analysis, Pete, that probably they're not going to catch the Rangers, the Devils, or the Hurricanes. And that puts you in the wild card territory again. And there's a lot of teams that, you know, you can make a case for probably every other team in the East 
to beat them and every other team in the East for them to Islanders to finish above. So it's um, going to come down to health. It's going to come down to Sorokin not being a 906 goaltender. And it's going to come down to the PK not being completely awful. And maybe it comes down to a coaching change at some point. Or you got anything to add? You guys touched on a lot of it, but basically the roundabout way to, to come back with this is just like we before the season, what we expected was a wild card team. You know, we, we'd be happy with anything above that. So, you know, Mike, as you said, just get to the playoffs. You know, obviously, the, the, the better seating you can get, the better. But the, to me right now, the Rangers are the only ones that are going to be a little bit. They're just so far ahead right now. That, that That's what sucks. They really have to plummet. But I, I, don't, I don't think the Flyers hold up. And I don't know, like we're tied with the Devils right now. They have a game in hand. So anything can happen, but they just can't. There's no more wiggle room is the point. They have to be. Lawrence. What's up? Put up, put a dollar, put any amount of money, any amount of money. Who is going to finish the year with a better record? Devils or the Islanders? I mean, I you know you have to really, double, really, double, really. Well, the Devils. That's a smart one, but you know, l- l- look at what's happened so far. Obviously, anything can happen. You know, obviously anything can happen, but they're you know the, the Hughes injuries is a big part of it too. So I don't know. I I, I still believe my my point is I still believe in the fact that this team can do well. I just they haven't shown it, so they have to show it. I mean, the Devils have survived the Jack Hughes injury. Carolina survived like eight. We're, we're complaining that Sorokin with 906 goaltending. The Hurricanes have survived like 820 goaltending. And now they've won seven out of the last 10. Looks like that issue's behind them. And they're back to being a very well run team while they're robbing the more. The Devils survived the Hughes injury, which is very hard for any team to lose a heart contender. So, yeah, I would, I think that we're nearing the end of the time where you could look at the standings and see the Islanders in the same little blurb as the Hurricanes and the Devils. But anyway, let's move on to the big discussion, the main point. We're back from the West. The team practiced, and running the practice was Lane Lambert. There was a lot of smoke last week about Lane potentially losing his job. Uh, Elliot Friedman on this podcast said that there was a lot of going on. He was, he was hearing a lot from the Islanders, uh, either potentially making a trade, maybe with Calgary, or moving on from the coach in terms of Lewis deciding which route to take. And then you listen to some of the post-game press conferences last week, and it looked like Lane was a defeated man. And all the same issues kept coming up. Blown leads, special teams, the team just finding ways to lose. They come back from the West. They have a couple of days off. I felt like if they were going to fire him, it was going to be either Sunday or Monday or even today. But he's still here. Doesn't look like he's getting fired just yet. Do we think? Do you think the win had any part in maybe saving his job, or do you think that the that Lamarrell is still not there in terms of firing uh, Lane? Yeah, I don't think it's the win. I mean, I can't imagine. I guess anything's possible, right? Uh, of course, but I can't imagine that one win on a road trip was the reason why he has, still has a job. I think it's either. You think he's the guy for the job that can get them to the playoffs and get them to make a deep run, or he's not. And I think at this point, at least from the evidence we have in front of us, which is he still has a job, is that Lou still thinks he is the correct guy for the job. I don't agree with it. I think they this team is, has a discipline issue. I think they their structure sucks. I think they um, the, the amount of blown leads is staggering, and I just think they need a jolt, to be quite honest. But and again, if Lou, I thought if Lou thought he was not the right guy for the job, I'd like to think he'd be gone. Unless somehow you tell me that ownership has said, "Don't fire him. We don't want to pay a coach. He did not to coach." 
And I don't know. I mean, that, that's always a possibility, right? I mean, the teams, they spent over a billion dollars to build the arena. Um, you know, I'm, I don't know their finances. I'm not going to pretend to know what their finances are and if UBS is making money, losing money, whatever it might be. But maybe there's something there where ownership says, we don't want to pay a guy, you know, a million bucks just to sit on the couch. So he's going to, and you know, he's going to, he's going to be here as long as he has a contract. I mean, maybe that's out there. I don't know. Uh, it wouldn't shock me, but I can't sit here and tell you I have any intimate knowledge or think that's a you know 100% a possibility, but that's definitely happening. But um, I think at this point, it's more Pete that he, Lou thinks he's the right guy for the job. Uh, I, I baffled by it because I'm with you. I thought this would have been this little three-day break would have been the perfect time to, to get a new voice in there. Maybe part of the issue too is who is that new voice? Do you go with a Daryl Sutter? Do you go with just you know promoting somebody from within, like a John McClain? Um, and maybe that's what Lou looked at and says, you know what? I don't think those other guys are a better options. So maybe I don't love Lane. I don't think he's doing a great job. But I don't think that there's anyone out there that's going to move the needle either. You brought up old Lou Lamarello a couple of minutes ago. Yep. And it just makes that old Lou Lamarello wouldn't fire this guy. 100%. He would have been fired last year. And it just feels like the old Lamarello is gone. And this, his other tenure is all about loyalty and building a family and giving all these guys lifetime contracts. And he doesn't have ruthless bone in his body that he used to have. That like everyone in the hot world is like, oh, Lou Lamarello. Don't want to mess with him. It feels like that's gone. I mean, this is that, is that him or you think that, do you think that's him or you think that's ownership? Like, honestly, I don't know. I'm asking the question. Do you think that Lou is, you know, in his older age has become a, more of a kind-hearted owner, or not owner, excuse me, general manager, or do you think ownership has said, this is how we're going to do things here? I mean, from what we know about ownership, it seems like they've given him free reign. Okay. They, Scott Malkin, when's the last time you saw him? I'm yeah, sure. He hasn't, well, been, he hasn't been in the United States, I don't think. His flight was delayed to the to the first game at Belmont, and I don't think he ended up showing up. So the last time I think I saw him, like, in an island related capacity was the announcement that Belmont was getting built. The guy does not show his face, and we know that he is the main guy here, and Ledecky is more of a figurehead slash cheerleader slash whatever you want to call him. So it feels like, for better or worse, I guess you would like this quality of most of your sports owners is hired Lou to run the hockey thing and he's letting me run, run the hockey thing. So I Yeah, no, I know. I I don't, I'm not saying you're right or wrong. I just, uh, but it's just such an odd turn, right? Like, like we said, when he was with the Devils, he, he was one way and one way only. And you didn't have to love it. You didn't have to like it, but you kind of respected, like, this is what he is. He's not going to change whether you're the, the top guy on the team or you're the bottom guy on the team. Like, this is what he is, what he stands for. Again, some people might not like it because it's too antiquated in their minds, but it worked for him. And let's, listen, with anything in life, if it works for you doing it a certain way, just because other people may not agree with it, chances are you're going to continue to do it your way because it's been successful. So, like, don't fault him for doing it, but it just seems like now, why stop now? You know, why, like you said, the lifetime contracts for Sezekis and, and okay, Anders Lee, I get at the time, but Scott Mayfield, Pierre friggin' Enval. I mean, I understand, you know, these guys have some value, but does everybody need a seven-year contract to, you know, to sign here? 
I mean, is, if, if that's the case, then there's a fundamental issue below the surface here that we haven't touched on or we haven't explored because it's, you know, can they retain anybody? Can they resign anybody unless they go above and beyond? And clearly, I don't think that's the case. I think they, you know, have a good enough foundation here where they can sell trying to be successful and win. And, and obviously, you know, it's a quality of life, you know, living on Long Island. There's a lot of good stuff here. Even if you're not from the area, you know, people seem to always fall in love with it, but um, it's almost like you need to have that Bo Horvat situation where you trade for the guy first, let him see, you know, check out the area, then you sign to a contract. You know, that's still a thing. They, they still can't sign any free agents, any major guys. The only guys they sign are guys who have been here that have kind of seen it and enjoyed it and experienced it and, you know, have come to love the, the, the locality. Um, but yeah, I'm off track a little bit here, but it just, I'm still, I, I have a hard time thinking that this is the new Lou, like this 80 plus year old man has all of a sudden decided he, everything he's done his whole career that's been successful, that's led to three Stanley Cups, uh, five cup final appearances, now all of a sudden he's going to change it because, you know, Pierre and Engvall, Casey Sezikis, Cal Clutterbuck all like each other and like to go to the movies together. It doesn't make any sense to me. The thing also with Lane, tying it back to Lane, is at this point you got to consider the fact that Lane is in a way a shield for Lou. He moved on from Barry for whatever reason. So say, for example, he fires Lane midseason and the team's still not very good. At that point in the offseason... Lou is naked and exposed and has to stand in front of ownership and has no one to blame because the team stuck under two coaches. So it could be self-preservation from Lou in terms of, I'll save this bullet for the offseason, buy myself another year, say it was Goach's fault. I mean, I'm just speculating. Yeah, I mean, that could be. I mean, it's, it's, it's a possibility. Again, for 80 or 81-year-old guy, whatever the exact age is, maybe um, with the success he's had, I feel like he would not have to go that route because he's obviously accomplished enough in his career that any GM would, you know, kill for. Um, but you're right. I mean, there could be certainly some tinge of self-preservation baked in there where you're 100% right. If, if he gets rid of this coach, if they're not bringing back trots for whatever reason, then it's, you're right. He's kind of the next in the firing line. And maybe he wants to work until he's, 85 years old and wins a cup here. I mean, maybe that's his goal and maybe that's how he's going to cement his legacy in his eyes. So for a bigger picture here, there was discussions last week about potentially making a move with Calgary and acquiring one of their pending free agent defensemen. And my original reaction was take away his keys. This guy cannot trade more of our future. And in a way that doesn't seem very fair to an acting general manager. Like at this point, they got to pick a lane and I know how they, I feel. I have a feeling how this ends. They're going to try and go all in and not do nearly enough and continue to mortgage their future. And that is, in my opinion, how this ends. But do you let Lou continue to trade away future assets and first round picks and prospects to add mediocre assets and try and turn this mediocre team into a playoff team, all in the hopes of a couple of more home playoff games and increasing the bottom line for the organization? Well, I mean, with the exception of the, you know, and mediocre players, and I know I know you're being a little facetious there, but um, yeah, if he's your general manager, 
you have to let you know and if and if ownership thinks he's the guy the correct guy to to lead this team then he has to have free reign and honestly if you're going to go if 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 the mentality is off the 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 thought process is we think we can win with this team you know we have the foundation in place to win with this team and it doesn't matter what me you or anyone else on twitter or or you know think or any of the fan thinks of the islanders or the rangers or the devils who doesn't matter if that's what the team, if that's what he thinks, and he's your general manager, then you have to let him do what he wants. You know, you have to let him, like you said, if he wants to trade more first-round picks, then let him do it. Um, because if he's the general manager, you can't tell your general manager, you're the general manager, but you can't do this. You can't do that. You can only do this. You can only do that. That doesn't, at that point then, just fire him. You know, if you don't trust him to run your organization, then get somebody else to run your organization. So whether I, you know, whether we agree with it, that mentality, uh, you know, I'm sure most fans would say we don't, but I'm at the, I, I think if he's the general manager and he wants to go all in, then I think you let him go all in, let him trade away more draft picks. My thing with draft picks, and again, I understand the importance of them. Clearly you want to have that pipeline continuing to, uh, refresh your, your, um, your organization, but you could always get draft picks. You know, if they decided tomorrow we want to blow this entire thing up. We're going to trade everything, anyone not nailed down. You can load up on all the draft picks you want. And you can have 25 draft. I mean, that's what the Islanders did. That's what Garth Snow did back in 2008 and 2009. They had 15 draft choices every friggin' year. It doesn't guarantee anything as we've seen, you know, as we, we've lived, I guess you'd say. Um, so if they think, if Lou is the general manager... And the ownership, and ownership thinks he should be the general manager because he's the right guy to run this franchise. Then, absolutely, as you said, it's not fair not to let him do what he thinks is best. And if that means trading another first-round pick for a, you know, number three defenseman, again, mean you can scream to a blue in the face that it's a bad move. He shouldn't do it. Uh, what's he doing? But you got to let him do it. You got to let him fit. You know, finish what he started essentially. Um, because there's going to come a day where, yes, this, he's won't be around this core, you know, again, won't be around, but you can always trade for more draft picks. I, I, I firmly believe that you can always acquire draft picks to replenish the team at a later date. So they're important. Don't get me wrong, but it's a currency you can always get more of whenever you want. See, the issue for me here is obviously I thought the ideal time to retool this organization was. The 2021 trade deadline, 2022 trade deadline, the year they missed the playoffs. They had guys like Clutterbuck and Varlamov and Mayfield that they could have traded for picks. And then they could have gotten those picks, added some youth to the system, gotten rid of a bunch of little, the ancillary members of the core, and basically shook things up that way. But they let that pass them by. So at this point, every year that you keep doing this, that you keep the... And what, what it boils down to me... This is a train of thought here. I don't think this team's good enough to win a Stanley Cup. And it would take the acquisition of an elite talent up front for me to change that view. And those guys don't grow on trees, obviously, as we've seen. So you're going to, if you're going to keep mortgaging in the future, it's a difference between having a quick turnaround rebuild three, four, five years, like we saw the Rangers have, or like we saw the Los Angeles Kings have. But then if you continue mortgaging the future, you're going to have a rebuild. Like, hate to say it. The New Jersey Devils just had it to the state. Lou Lamarello left their organization in. Or Detroit, who continuously mortgaged the future to have that 25, 26-year stretch of making the playoffs. Or even the San Jose Sharks now, who 
have been one of the league's more consistent organizations for 20 plus years, almost 30 years. They're nowhere close. They're, they're one of the worst hockey teams we've seen in my lifetime. They're nowhere close to being competitive. They've quite a while ahead of them. Detroit hasn't made the playoffs in like eight years now. Jersey made the playoffs like what, once in a decade, and that was during the lockout shortened year. I mean, they had windows, and they still might have a window. I think Brock Nelson's the big one. If you trade Brock, you get a huge package, in my opinion, before his contract expires, where they could prevent this from being a Devils or a Red Wings 8-10 year rebuild and instead retool this in three to four years. Yeah, and I, I, I agree with you, Pete, there, and that it's, I don't think this is a Stanley Cup team. I mean, I think, let me just get that out there. I don't think this is a team that can, as presently constructed, can win a Stanley Cup. Now, again, you get to the playoffs, of course, anything can happen. Sorokin gets hot, you know, power plays click in. Yeah, thing, crazy things happen. But, you know, if you told me today on, again, November 21st, are they one of the top five, six, seven, eight teams in the league, the contenders? No, they're not. Clearly, they're not based on what we've seen so far. Um, and you bring up Rock Nelson. And it, I mean, yeah, he certainly would be a guy who would you think would have value. And again, I hate to do this because, you know, this is an Islander podcast and, you know, we're we're not supposed to give credit elsewhere, you know, maybe. But like you said, with the Rangers, they took Derek Broussard, who was productive for them for a few years, who they'd gotten for Derek. I think they'd gotten for Derek Stepan pre before that, who um, was one of their, you know, a solid forward for the Rangers. They turned Stepan into Broussard. Broussard gave him a couple good years. And as they would get, he was getting a little bit long in the tooth. He wasn't over the hill, but you know, he wasn't in his prime or wasn't at the top of his prime. They flipped him for Zabadajed and and a second round draft pick. And now Mika Zabadajed is one of the top, you know, ten forwards or ten centers in the league, um, or at least he has been for a couple of years. And Derek Broussard was, you know, he. You know, he was not anything like that for Ottawa, you know, then eventually moved on to other places, as we know. Um, so, yeah, something like Brock Nelson, that would be an interesting, he'd be an interesting piece to put out there to try to find that forward in his maybe early to mid-20s, which hasn't maybe put it all together yet, but you think obviously has that upside that in the right situation, he could really flourish. That would be fantastic. I, you know... I'm not going to sit here and pretend I have a list of names who would fit that bill, but yeah, that would be the ideal situation where you're kind of, you're retooling on the fly. You're still being competitive because you have the goalie, you have enough in place where you're not going to be a bottom five team, but you also, like I said, realistically taking a step back in, okay, we'll take a half step back this year, but two steps forward next year because we have these other pieces in place. So, um, it is an interesting uh, conundrum that the Islanders are in, um, but the overall point of uh, if Louis your GM, you have to let him do whatever he sees fit. I mean, otherwise you have to fire him. I mean, I don't think you can go half. You could half ass it one way or the other. It's either he's the GM and he can mortgage the future more so, or he's not the GM, or he, you don't want to do that, and you have to bring somebody else in who will follow those orders. I guess. What do you think the odds of us going into a rebuild and having a college defenseman refuse to sign with anyone but us and then turn into a top two defenseman in the league and then having a star free agent sign with us when there are no star free agents ever available and then winning the draft lottery twice in two years are 
Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, it's incredible because the Islanders, all the years, they were terrible. They never once won the draft lottery. You know, even the year they got Tavares, they didn't win the lottery. They just didn't lose it. And they were already the worst team in the league. So they just kind of maintained their position. Um, you know, so, you know, the year they got Ryan Strom, they dropped the spot because the Devils won the lottery and the Devils got Adam Larson. We ended up with Ryan Strom and, um, you know, with that. So it's, you're right. I mean, the Rangers clearly had a lot of things break their way and whether, you know, really fairly or not, again, players seem to want to play for them. And yeah, a top defenseman in the, in the league essentially said, I only want to play there and, and, and walked and got out of two organizations in order to find its way to the Rangers. So the Islanders will probably never have that luck um, to, you know, to kind of kickstart a rebuild or retool, whatever you want to call it. Um, but I do think that uh, this team, if lose here, I don't see them going into any type of prolonged rebuild. I can see maybe a little bit of a retool, but even that, I would be shocked if they really. I'd be I'd be surprised if that was the route they went, just because of lose age. And I think he really is trying to win one more and get one back into the finals one more time. And he could say, I did it with two different organizations. And I, I, I don't think he's going to, he's not going to be the guy to re to re uh, to rebuild this team. He's going to be the guy who's going to get as much as he squeeze as much as he can out of them. And then he's going to drop dead at the, at the desk, or he's going to be, have to be let out of, you know, kicking and screaming. Cause I don't think he's going to leave on his own. Yeah, unfortunately, that seems to be the case. I mean, say what you... And there's a lot of discourse about Lou the last couple of days or weeks. You saw the article on The Athletic by Shana Goldman, which I don't think was a fair representation of Lou Lamarillo's tenure. I mean, I'm probably one of his biggest haters out there. But to act like the Islanders didn't almost win a Stanley Cup under his tenure or that he didn't restore credibility to an organization that was floundering, that's just unfair to the guy. I mean, obviously, he got very lucky with the whole trot situation and the timing there. But there's no denying that over the last six years, is it? This is this year six of loose tenure? Yes. I believe only four teams have more playoff series wins than the Islanders do. So, yes, obviously, it appears at this point that he might not be the guy to get us out of the situation he's put us in. But to act like his tenure has been an epic failure is just flat out wrong. Yeah, it's it's an unfair character characterization, and and you're 100 percent right. I mean, he's he certainly has not been perfect, um, uh, evidenced by the fact of the situation they're in today. You know, today and they were last year and even the year prior with uh, you know um, back uh, in 2021. But yeah, as you said, they've they've had a lot of success, team success over the past Elvis Dernis tenure that probably 20, yeah, 25 other teams would have signed up for and said we're going to be relevant for pretty much every season. We're going to have a couple deep playoff runs. Um, we're going to have playoff success of elsewhere, uh, otherwise as well in other, you know, the, uh, the first season, you know, when they, when they swept Pittsburgh. So, yeah, I think to characterize his tenure as a failure and, you know, he can't do it, to me, that's, it's lazy. Um, it's, it's, to me, it's trying to just feed a step, you know, trying to uh, confirm a narrative you have to say, well, we don't like this guy because he, you know, he uh, he's 80, he's an older type of uh, general manager. He doesn't maybe adhere to the all the analytical darling uh, items that everybody else, you know, that they love. And, you know, we're not the Carolina Hurricanes and their advanced analytic department and all that other, 
stuff, but um, he's had success here. I mean, if, yeah, you know, you don't have to like the guy. You don't have to. You could think some of his, his antics, you know, are antiquated with the no beards and the press can't ride with the team and all this other stuff. I mean, yeah, maybe that's a little silly, but again, it, if it worked for you, for if you did anything in life in any career path, and you had a if you've reached the mountaintop of your field um, early in your career doing it one way, maybe in a few, maybe some several years later, that's not the best way to do it. But I'm not going to fault you for doing it that way because you had so much success previously. And that goes for any profession, not just a general manager of a, of a hockey club. So, um, yeah, I, I, I saw that article. I, I, I read excerpts from it. Um, you know, there were some valid, there were certainly valid points in there that the author made, but I think overall, you know, the, the premise that he's been an abject failure, essentially, uh, I, I would disagree with that for the reasons you said before, Pete, I, I took, re I took Pete's breath away and made him speechless with all my wonderful words. Absolutely. So yeah, obviously like that's a very fair, uh, synopsis of where this organization's at. We'll probably know a bunch in the coming weeks, see how they perform on the ice, see if there's something to be made of this season, or if they continue to lose a lot of games, then we'll have a completely different discussion. But as for now, the season's still very much in play. They've been losing games, but like you said, they've been getting points, and that's all that matters right now. So yeah, we got Philly twice this week. It's a team that we're chasing, believe it or not. So we'll see how that goes. Mike, thanks for joining me here today. It's great having you on. Of course, thanks for having me, and uh, it's always fun to to talk shop with uh, with you, Pete, and then obviously with Lawrence, who was on for for a while, but I think he had some technical issues with his uh, surprisingly technical issues with his computer. Yeah, this is a total shock. But um, yeah, thanks everyone for listening, and let's go Islanders. Thanks for listening to the Isles Nation podcast. Make sure to follow Isles Nation on Twitter at nyislesnation. It would mean the world to us if you could subscribe, rate and review our podcast. Let's go Islanders!